Welcome to Dangerously Likely. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. I'm Terrell Couch. And we are Dangerously Likely to start season two of the pod. Whoa, 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 whoa. How is season two different from season one? Well, you guys might have noticed when you guys clicked into the episode today that we have some new cover art. And now that you've been listening, you can hear that we've got some new music as well. But that's not the only thing that we have revamped since we went on hiatus in December. As I mentioned in our last episode, I did travel out to Boise and Terrell, Caleb and myself had the opportunity to have a really in-depth conversation about who we are as a podcast what we're trying to say, and what we bring to this space. What makes us unique from the thousands of other podcasts that exist on platforms today? And what do we feel like we contribute to our society, to our culture, and obviously most specifically to our democracy? So Caleb, Terrell, if you want to jump into it a little bit with me, some of the things that we discussed, um, I'll kick it off. I know that we have constantly talked about the millennials perspective, or to be more specific um, for Caleb, who is actually one year into Gen Z. <laughs> Cusper. We- yeah, we talked about how that perspective and what we mean by that is what have we inherited from the generations above us? What decisions have they made politically, in society, economically, um, that it impacts our perspective as a, as a generation, largely along education, uh, student loan debts, the economy that we inherited, um, the debt that we're inheriting as, as, a, as a generation, but also what is the uh, remnants of the bad decisions or the late decisions made by previous generations, such as how late in our, our country, our democracy um, rights for you know African-Americans have come, for minorities have come, how slow we are to change. And what does being in this generation, um, how does that inform our perspective on the, on the world? Uh, Terrell, Caleb, I know that you both had some thoughts on this as well. Do you want to jump in? Yeah, Torrance. I mean, first of all, it was great to finally meet Torrance in person, y'all. Like, Somehow we've been doing this for a year and it's all been virtual. So this is kind of, this was, it was a fun weekend. Blame it on COVID. (laughs) Yes. COVID and we're all across the country. Um, Well, one of us. Yeah. Just one of us. It's (laughs) it's Torrance. Um, But yeah, no, kind of just based off what you said, I think this podcast and what it means to us, I think it varies, but I think we all have the same kind of idea that, you know, we really, feel like we represent the millennials slash a little bit of Gen Z, I guess, uh, a little bit of their voice too. And third, we're, we're just kind of, I don't know, we're in this place in our country where it feels like something historical or will be taught in history books is happening every single year. And sometimes it feels like every week and we're the ones that are growing up into it. And we have to reckon with the decisions of past generations and even what's happening right now. Uh, whenever we have kids or when we are older as well in this country. So I'll pass it off to you, Terrell. But I really think that this podcast can be a place, not only a place, but a space to have these conversations, uh, honest conversations about what's happening to the country and about what it means for people like us who have to live through the consequences and maybe benefits of a lot of these decisions. Yeah. And um the conversation that we're able to have and our ability to make it into the space is a hundred hundred percent thanks to you all as our listeners being able to hear your feedback and your contributions around um, our ability to, to engage all in a conversation and to open up a space where 
you all feel that not only do you understand the topic and the issue that we're having, but you can also contribute and have feedback of that topic and issue. So as we continue to move forward into season two and you all start seeing those new bits, we're super excited to bring you along with our journey, um, but also to expand into different spaces. I know Torrance is excited about this. I'm personally excited for all the listeners who ever heard me say civics fail. We are super excited to tease that in the coming weeks and each month, we will have a special episode that will focus in on civics in America, not only in the education of it, but really diving in deep to understand how our political system works and really start engaging the masses to see that the power is always in the people's hands in this country, not in the politicians. And so, like you've heard us said before, this podcast started as an experiment um, and it continues to be an experiment. We're excited about the new content that we're bringing to you. Like Terrell mentioned, we have been grateful for the feedback and for you guys joining us on this continuous journey. Um, and we're excited to have you to continue on this journey with us in season two of Dangerously Likely. And we'll be right back after this. Let's go above the fold with um, however long we've been gone headlines. (laughs) (laughs) So like we said in the intro in season two, we're going to be trying to be more intentional about doing things a little bit differently. And one of those things is in above the fold, we we want to try to make sure that we're having a little more of a roundtable discussion about the news of the day. Um, Like we said, we're going to be more intentional about trying to bring our perspective as millennials and Gen Z to these conversations. And I think this roundtable format will allow us to do that more. Um, more easily, but also more intentionally. So to kick it off, obviously, um, since December, when we when we went on hiatus, we've had a lot of big things have happened in politics and in current events, namely the one year anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, um, and specifically what's going on with the January 6th committee in the House. Um, they have since won a Supreme Court battle to get the Trump administration's archived um, papers from the White House, which will give them an insight to what was going on in the days leading up to January 6th, specifically around the president and his staff. Um, and we are now seeing more subpoenas from that committee, uh, such as people like Rudy Giuliani, Alex Jones, um, and, and other people indirectly around the president. So it does seem that the January 6th committee in the House is getting closer and closer uh, to the epicenter of what was occurring in the Trump administration and the the, the plot to steal the presidency. Um, and to continue with what's going on um, kind of in the House and with the legislative agenda for the Biden administration, we saw the failure of Build Back Better. They, the Democrats could not come to an agreement on a budget resolution for Build Back Better, um, mainly because of being held up by Senator Kristen Sinema and Senator Joe Manchin, not being able to come to an agreement with the rest of the caucus. No, no, no. Um, it was Joe Manchin. We will give Kristen Sinema her day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Well, you know what? Okay, yeah. You know, I will give you that. She did, as of the last deal, get on board. Yes. Maybe I'm just having a little bit of uh, hungover thoughts about the way that she was treating voting rights and her inability to create a carve out in she the filibuster. Never, she never said rights. that she doesn't support voting rights. She just said she doesn't support the filibuster. <laughs> 
the metaphors I could come up for with for that bullshit, just to be clear. I'm but let's saying, keep it those on. Those are two very different things. Let, let's keep it on. But as we get to voting rights next, right? So we had the January six, this January sixth anniversary. The Build Back Better budget resolution failed because they couldn't come to an agreement. But the president vows that they will continue to take that up here in the new session in January, and that he has not given up on um, his flagship piece of legislation and his agenda. Um, but more specifically, uh, throughout January, leading up to Martin Luther King Jr. Day, we really did have um, a, a huge fight legislatively around voting rights, and specifically around uh, the Democratic caucus creating a carve-out um, in the filibuster to pass voting rights with just a 51-vote um, majority, which would include a tie-breaking vote by Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, and then due to uh, opposition from Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Kristen Sinema from Arizona, and their their lack of consent, I guess, obviously, they voted no on it, uh, 52 to 48 with the Republicans to, to, to establish that carve out in the rules for the filibuster and thus tanking uh, the voting rights agenda. Um, what's really fun, and I, want, I do want to talk about this with you guys a little bit because you guys know, I've, I'm sure there's, there's listeners who are laughing at the fact that I'm like, oh yeah, let's pause and talk about voting rights because obviously it's, it's among my favorite topics. Um, but what we were looking at here, right, in, in connection to some of the other things that I just discussed with the January 6th insurrection, that the insurrection was as a result of the failed election, uh, a re-election of Donald Trump and the plot in among out in different states across the country to steal the presidency via the electors in the electoral college. And since we've went on hiatus, there's been much more um, evidence and proof of some of these efforts, specifically in the state of Michigan, where I am from, where they were there. We have former electors who literally withdrew their name because they were not willing to be a part of the coup in which they were trying to put forth different electors to send to Washington to vote for Donald Trump for the state of Michigan, despite him not winning the vote here. So in terms of voting rights, this are, this entire conversation legislatively was around how do we secure our, our elections while there is a specific, um, there's a specific effort by the Republican parties at the state level to change voting laws, to allow for, for what would have occurred and been illegal before to be illegal this time, allowing for the state legislature to decide what electors are being sent, regardless of how the popular vote went in that state. So, gentlemen, if you guys want to jump into that conversation with me, tell me a little bit about what you guys are thinking in regards uh, to both the developments of January 6th, as well as specifically to voting rights. Well, I, I feel like you hit every piece, right? And just genuinely, the... My frustration here is we continue to have a misguided view of who is responsible here. Be as mad as you might be at Manchin and Cinema, but there are 50 senators currently in the Senate who are obstructing a constitutional right that was not inherently granted to millions of Americans at the onset of this country, but has been granted through a bipartisan process. Yeah. The 60s is a little shaky, but I do know a couple of Republicans voted for the Civil Rights Act. But you have this you have this purity test that's shaping up in the Democratic Party that if you don't just jump on the bandwagon, you are no longer a Democrat. And that narrative for me continues to be dangerous and not inherently educated to the, the situation that is our government. Because Technically, it's supposed to be a caucus. Um, 
But let's say you get rid of Cinnamon or Man- Cinema or Mansion, you now have Mitch McConnell who will immediately become the majority leader. If you lose those two individuals, we don't even have a conversation about this because I know that um, history tends to seem like a far off thing. But the For the People's Act was first introduced while Mitch McConnell was the Senate majority leader and he created his own graveyard that didn't even allow the conversation to start. So while we're frustrated and while we're angry about this, I can't help but equally be annoyed that the party that is leading this effort is turning its fingers on itself rather than trying to find an opportunity and a way to activate its uh, its advocates and its people to get rid of some of those senators that are literally hindering a constitutional right, who are stopping the ability, who are trying to pretend like the January 6th insurrection was just a little rally that got out of hand, not owning the fact that they marched through the Capitol trying to kill the vice president at the time, were inside of the speaker's um, personal office and were actively looking for senators in the Republican Party who were not marching and walking and towing the line. Just because we might look different, that same mindset is already starting to show itself in the Democratic Party right now. And it's very concerning. I think that lacks context. I really I, do. I, I think I provide I, a lot of context. That is no, important but I, but, no, but I mean, I'm lacking you know, the, the way that you've contextualized the argument to me seems I'm not going to call it on its face completely inaccurate because politically, I think that we are certainly in that place. But what I'm talking about is when you have a party who is like, there is a righteous fight. That's the thing. There is a difference between a righteous fight and simply being political and discriminatory, which is what is happening in the Republican Party. Because my thing about cinema is like, you can have a principled stance on the filibuster, but to tell me that you are for the fucking voting rights uh, legislation that is up and you would vote yes on it. but but, But here's the thing. That's a constitutional right. Yeah. And you are saying, I don't just, I will not get rid of a rule. It's not in the constitution. Like there is, if you cannot put more weight on a constitutional right versus a Senate rule that is not in the constitution, then you have riddle me that. But I mean, I really can't like, arguing the same thing here, right? Like they're not mutually excuse, uh, exclusive and it's not inconsistent. You can be for and understand that at a point, the filibuster has also stopped some really, really bad things from happening in this country. And we had this conversation once before uh, of, I understand the frustration. I know it sucks that we're watching a a Congress right now that's stuck at 50-50, that has the stupid, stupid cloture vote that puts uh, the burden at 60, and no senator really has to face repercussions for that. But I also know that going into the Civil War, there were a lot of conversations that would have done more harm to me that is part of the reason the filibuster was used during that time. And as you move forward, blah, 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 blah. What's important here is Chris, Kristen Cinema does support the Voting Rights Act. She very much is making an argument for that. Just because she won't get rid She'll of the filibuster. She'll never fili- have to prove it. Just She'll never because, have to prove it. But she said it. Like, that is proving it, right? Oh, like, that's if, really great. Donald Trump said a lot of things, too. If you're going to say that her words matter when it comes to Build Back Better and all of these spaces, then her words should matter here, too. And she's been very vocal about her support for this. Her hesitation is she has seen what happens when we remove the filibuster. Again, history is not that far. The Supreme Court is in such an imbalance right now because Mitch McConnell made the the conscious effort to pull the nuclear option, remove the filibuster, 
and force through things with a simple majority. But we and keep bringing knives to a gunfight. But while it might be good in this interim and in this space, I applaud her. And I know this frustrates y'all. I applaud her because there's, there's a recognition of the longtime implications of this happening. We've already talked about on this pod too. I know, but where's the, the long-term implications of not doing it? She has them. She literally will speak up and say why this needs to pass, but she also will speak up and say why there needs to be an understanding that we need to be activated and we need to be marching and we need to be protesting and we need to be electing people who will do that. We need to stop pretending like this is a two-senator problem when there are 50 senators who are actively stopping the constitutional right for us to vote. That Do is you have problem. some sort of plan to get them to vote for it? Because I understand no, that they're a part of the problem. For it. I have a plan to get them removed from Senate because they are obstructionists and are doing no good for our country. That is the argument. And that's the point that we continue to let go. No, because it's both and. It's no. both and. Because you think that we can't vote, we can't work to get other senators elected and get some of these Republican senators out of office while also being upset that while in the situation that we're in, in which will give us the opportunity to actually organize and get people to the ballot box to cast their vote, to remove these people from office and to vote for Democrats into those Senate seats. But when they don't have the opportunity to go to the ballot and vote, because it's being because it's being robbed by the state legislatures at the state level and we won't do anything to protect it at the federal level that's all a pipe dream because you can't remove someone from office if you can't vote to do it it is it's not one or the other it is all of it well that's fair though but the voting rights bill didn't really address all the state things that are happening cuz technically the federal government can't do that yeah it's a state rights thing not worth getting into. <laughs> yeah, as well, we don't disagree on that front, but there are things that we can do to strengthen it to create standards, like federally. Yes, yeah, and and the voting rights not passing is something. Honestly, for me, it was expected. Yeah, it was completely expected. We and knew that was coming in. I agree with well, yeah. you on the point. I agree with you on the point that I think cinema can support voting rights and not support a filibuster change. But I also have warmed up to the idea that. I think if you got rid of the filibuster and passed a lot of reforms, which I'm not actually sure is like the most possible thing with depending on what Manchin and Cinema say with certain things. But if you did, I think it would make it kind of hard for Republicans to actually take those away when they're in power. 100%. That's why Mitch McConnell doesn't want to see the filibuster die because he knows that the Democrats can institute things that are so wildly liked and so impactful that the Republican Party will not be able to change it. Yes. My issue is that she's making a conditional statement about it. Like she's like she's making a statement saying I would I would support these without supporting the the condition that will allow her to support it. That's where it feels empty to me. I don't doubt that she supports the legislation, but I'm saying how empty does that sound to the people in your state who are facing a a right-wing led a, like legislative agenda on voting rights right now after mm-hmm. they did an entire investigation of their uh, of the an audit of their uh, election and found n- and found no fraud and are still introducing another bill to quote unquote strengthen what they mean by that is strengthen the white right wing of the freaking voting yeah like it, yeah yeah I, I know we don't disagree it's just all very frustrating is what i will say it's very frustrating because it doesn't seem like the actions are consistent with the words and you know that bothers the shit out of me it's super it's super frustrating and it's even more frustrating to know that there doesn't seem to be another chance to get voting rights across the table before the midterms and it's probably too late now anyways in some respects and depending on what you do with like redistricting and stuff 
And technically, what? by letting it fail, it did give the Senate another option that I've heard Schumer is tossing around, that there's a there's a loop, another loophole that can bring the bill back up and essentially put us right back in the same situation, but buy him some time to do some backdoor negotiations. Because well, Senate rules are just ridiculously convoluted. Well, I guess I wish there was more backroom communications before this vote but yes but i'm actually glad that they did and i think it is i think it's more valuable than not but i will say something when we started the year with the 50 50 senate with the house and with the presidency there was only like 20 something senators that wanted to get rid of the filibuster for this yeah and i do have to say 48 48 i do have to say that now that we have Schumer got 48 senators to get on that side, even people like John Tester from Montana, who is, I would argue, also a centrist like Joe Manchin. And I just have to say that, like, even though that it, I don't know, I think the the best, one of the best hopes that we can have is that we can organize because there, like everybody's been saying, and a lot of activist groups have been saying on the left side, there's really no off years. There really isn't. And not, even though anymore. we had to put in a there lot. There never was. It's true. There never was. And even though we we put in so much might to get Biden the presidency and the Senate to the Democrats and stuff, um, not even two years ago, we're going to have to do that every year for a long time. Exactly. And we're going to have to elect more. And the answer isn't not electing Mansion or Cinema. The answer is electing more people. Exactly. Because a Schumer can get 48 people to agree to get rid of the filibuster, if you elect a few more Senate Democrats, I'm sure he can get to 50 for it. I'm sure he can. He 100% can. And I think the issue, that's though, a good the, point. Fear, the fear, obviously, is that the midterms right now do not look good for Democrats. And it's made even worse by everything that Republicans are doing at the state and local level. That's just because we allow media outlets to really paint a narrative that Virginia told us everything we need to know about the future and all these pieces. I have two very quick closing points to, one, respond to something that you mentioned, Torrance, but also to lift up something that you just shared, Caleb. And I I said this at the onset, right? We have a tendency to believe that history was so long ago and then to believe that because of history, we, we as people don't have to operate the same. The Democratic Party, since the election of Barack Obama, has inherently not understood its job in politics any longer. We've talked about multiple times how they suck at messaging, how they will not run a 50 state policy or campaign. They will focus on very key states or defending certain spaces that they need to. All of these pieces when truly what you just shared, Caleb, is what we need to focus on. Why do we speak so highly and so favorably about Georgia? Because Stacey Abrams lost her election in an unfair way where the literal secretary of state who was also running for governor purge roles and purge roles and allowed for her voting people who were going to vote for her to no longer be eligible instead of being in this space of understanding and trying to find ways to change the rules she organized she got georgia to elect two democratic senators that gave us the 50-50 split that is where we need to be. That is what the argument needs to be. I know there's frustration about all of these things with cinema and mansion and whatnot, but nothing in American history for a black and brown person has ever come easy. It has always required marching. It has always required organizing. And I know that this was the time that it really felt maybe we had a chance. Maybe we could finally see what all of the white brothers and sisters and people have seen of the country just giving you what you want. And it sucks and it's frustrating. But at the same time, 
I never held out hope because I know not to trust this country in that way. I know that when I show up and when I march, when I go to these places, when I help and hopefully what this podcast is going to do in this uh, second season when it comes to advocacy and organizing, when you start lifting up, here are states that we need to target because this Republican is vulnerable. Those are the things that need to happen. Changing the filibuster is a one-stop quick fix, but also but also opens the door to a lot of other things that can cause a lot of other problems. If we can really genuinely change the system and elect people and do the things that we need to do to lift up the voices that are missing at the table, that's going to get all the fix all the problems that we are talking about here. Us trying to find another way to be the Republicans is not going to change it. And I, I understand and I'm going to be frustrated about that. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Well, I absolutely do think we want to wrap up this conversation, but I, I have to say this because I feel like I'm being misrepresented, and that's why I feel like it's important for me to say, because you keep coming back to this, like we have to, we have to work on organizing and, and, and electing more um, Democratic senators in these states so that they become obsolete. My only, like, my only frustration with that kind of framing of, of, of what I'm trying to say is that I think that I can both criticize what those two people are doing and still think that this is the answer. It is not one or the other. I can say that I do not think that they are looking at the cards in front of them in a fair way and saying that I'm making the decision that's best for my constituents, which is what this comes down to. She has an 8% approval rating. 8%, okay? This is not some constitutional conversation or political conversation. She's not representing her constituents in the way that they are. She got censured by her own state Democratic Party because she's not representing her constituents in the way that she said that she would. So there's that. I can make the criticism of what they're doing and saying, I'm not going to make this vote on a principle and also know that the larger answer is that we must organize and that we must also vote in Democrats in, the, in those seats that, that are, are up in 2022 by Republicans. Namely, and I want to give I want to give a shout out because Wisconsin is going to be a state where this is going to be hopefully fought and won. Um, but I, I wanted that on record that like it is not, I don't just think we need to change the filibuster. I think we need to change the filibuster because that's the cards in front of us right now. But that's not the long-term solution. No. Voting and 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 get and electing the right people is always the long-term solution. Get a new deck, because you know who else got censured by their party for disagreeing? Yeah, I know. I know how the Republicans are <laughs> operating, but that's what goes back to my point of like there is a righteous fight, and then there's just stupid politics, and that's what that is. I'm not willing to conflate my righteous fight for something that is a constitutional right with that of the political actions of another party just because they might look similar, because they're not the same. My intention matters behind what I'm saying. Their mm -hmm. intention does too, and they're not the same thing. So moving on, on Wednesday, January 26, news broke that Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer will retire at the end of this year's term in June. Democrats in the Senate plan on confirming a new Supreme Court justice in a similar timeline that Republicans used just before the 2020 election with Justice Amy Coney Barrett. Back then, Republicans confirmed her in about a month. However, a 50-50 Senate has never confirmed a justice. Hmm. President Biden has also held firm on his commitment to nominate a black woman. Yes. What are y'all's reactions? I actually think that given the possible issues we are going to see with this confirmation, that I couldn't ask for a better call to action leading into a midterm, right? Because you know they're going to pull, you know they're going to pull some bullshit. You know they're going to pull some bullshit. Well. And people aren't that happy about the state of things with with Biden right now. I mean, granted, that's his demographic that still that still has the best approval rating for him, but they're not that happy. But you you nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, and the Republican pulls their shit. 
Oh, I can see the streets now. I can They're see the streets They're not getting a nomination. Now. No, I mean, he gets to nominate. Now, do I know how this fight's going to go? But he's getting a nomination. Yeah. Like, he did, like gonna you get, get to nominate no matter what. Comfort. I mean, he might not even get a nomination, right? It, it sounds like him and Schumer have some decent conversations and understand where things are. It's going to get stuck in committee. So this was, we talked about this offline. And it's a I very, don't know about that, though. It's going to get stuck in committee. And there's a very specific explain. reason for that. So I don't know if you all remember, but at the onset of the Senate, um, Mitch McConnell held on to the leader title a lot longer than people had expected because there were some intense negotiations happening again behind closed doors between him and Chuck Schumer around what power sharing looked like in a 50-50 Senate. When you get into the space where one party is in charge, not because they have more senators, but because they have the tie-breaking vote, normally both parties will come together and come up with some... Um, power sharing conversation of what does that look like? Why this is important is a part of the power sharing agreement was an even split of committees. So where the Senate has a tie breaking vote with the vice president committees do not. If something ends with a split vote, it either dies or has to be brought to the general floor of the Senate to be voted on. And that's why Depending on how conversations go and depending on who the president decides or thinks is worth nominating, there might be a solid chance that he has to sit on it longer than he would like because the individuals who sit on the Judiciary Committee, most notably Lindsey Graham, will be playing some of these cards and really being thoughtful of if all 11 of my Republicans sit on this and say no, this will force it to a bigger floor vote that we know we can hold and obstruct. He's not getting us uh, justice as far as we're concerned, not until after the midterms, which is terrifying and frustrating. And of course, Mitch McConnell managed to find a way to still retain his turtle hands on all the power right now. But that's why I say that of the White House has a lot of things to consider that I don't think they anticipate it going into. Oh, I, I, none of that is wrong, but he, nonetheless, what I'm saying about activating the base is that he, whether that makes it out of committee or not, he still gets to nominate someone who has to not make it out of committee, which I think is, yeah. is the card, right? Like is the activism card for the base is like, because you're not wrong. I think your assessment is likely quite accurate and frustratingly so, right? As far as like what their, their actions are going to be. But I do think when we're talking about a black woman first black woman being nominated to the Supreme Court, which is what he he said that he would do on the campaign trail. I think there's a lot of political opportunity there, which what is what the stupid freaking Supreme Court nominations have come down to is yeah. a lot of political um, pressure. So, I mean, but, it could happen, but I do think that the nomination will be helpful. But do y'all think, and especially because he's the vice president who saw this happen last time, do y'all think he would put a nominee through the same pressures that Merrick Garland, his current attorney general went through. And that's why I'm that these are all the things that play in my head of, he saw what it was like to nominate a justice that just ended up being held and had no real understanding and grappling. And I mean, I'll, I'll kick it to you, Caleb. What, like, do you think the white house has a strategy here or do you think there's a possible route for the white house to take? I think the White House probably developed a strategy uh, almost right away since they were in office. Since <laughs> Stephen Breyer True. could have is is older and could retire at any moment, and now's the moment. And I do think Biden's going to put nominees forward, and I think a black woman is going to be one of them. 
And I don't know about this committee thing. I don't know. I'm the rules guy. I'm a nerd. We know. I, I know that like the committees are split, but I'm not, I'm unsure that that's going to stop a Supreme court nominee from going to the floor. And I think Torrance is completely right. I think that there's some political opportunity here. I don't know if there should be with Supreme Court nominees, but that is the world we live in. And I think it could be a driving force for the midterms. It'll definitely help Biden's approval rating. That's for sure. Getting a Supreme Court pick. um, That always helps a president. (laughs) Honestly. Well, there is a shortlist out, and I think that they're like his who is that like been rumored on the top of the shortlist for a long time. So I think we, Mm -hmm. I think like so yeah. So Katanji, she sits on the first. um, What is I I forget? Katanji Brown Jackson. Yeah, she sits currently on the first circuit, or is it the second circuit in Washington? The the next highest court behind the Supreme Court. Um, That's for confirmation with flying colors. Yeah, with fifty three. Right, I think three Republicans were on that vote, and so. That's where I think, like, with, and also she's a, an excellent jurist, an excellent jurist. Um, that I think that, like, that if they nominated her, like, they would there'd be a different conversation around the voting because you've got people who have voted for it before. But also specifically to what you were talking about, um, Caleb, is I do believe they have a plan, and I kind of know they have a plan because I was reading up on it. But specifically, we're kind of lucky because we're looking at a president who chaired the Judiciary Committee. Mm-hmm. When when Breyer was being was being confirmed and understands the ins and outs, and then also Ron Klain, who has mm-hmm. his his chief of staff, yep. who has both um, experience working with the Judiciary Committee as a lawyer for for nominations and confirmations, as well as experience in the White House Counsel's Office um, for judicial nominations. So I think that we have some insiders here who who may know a thing or two about how to get a confirmation through or also how to do the backdoor dealing on the nomination and get it out of committee. But you're not wrong again from the onset. We are dealing with a completely obstructionist Republican Party whose only goal right mm-hmm. now is for us to allow us to get nothing done. And of course, they deserve to be raked over the absolute hottest coals for the, <laughs> what they're doing right now. Yeah. But to like many of the yeah, but to many but to like many of the reasons I had said on the previous conversation, no one's holding them accountable. So like they have nothing to they have nothing to be worried about. No one's holding them accountable. Look, um, I think it's before we move on, I think it's comforting to know that cinema and mansion who have been kind of thorns in the side in other issues have been pretty unanimous with the rest of the party in securing those um, federal judge positions. Biden uh, in the Senate have actually confirmed a ton of federal judge positions this past year. And it's kind of been snuck under the rug a little bit. We don't hear about it as much, but they've been very successful with that. For a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, and so I'm, even if some stuff goes down with the nomination, I'm, confident that it's going to go through i feel good about it at this moment we'll see what happens (laughs) well i think what his number was what 13 circuit court judges 29 district court judges naming the first openly lgbtq woman to sit on an appeals court first muslim american federal judge and record number of black women in public defenders so they're on a roll with this uh thank you for this beautiful beautiful graphic of information uh that was shared with us i wish i had the i could cite that with right now but beautiful graphic of some of the first year accomplishments and thank you for sharing that trail in typical young generation fashion, um, recently, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this, I woke up to some trending tweets about World War Three. And for our listeners, um, this is as all, one does in 2022, <laughs> as we did in what 2019. Um, this is all in relation to Russia's escalation um, along the Ukrainian border, and also some in increase um, animosity between the Baltic states and Russia. 
what, a week ago, the president came out in a press conference and had what some might call a gaffe, where a reporter asked him very specifically to state what would happen or what needs to happen for um, the U.S. to deploy troops to Ukraine. And the the vice president or the president struggled, right? I think we can all own that. He had some issues understanding and, and addressing that point. I do think it's important, and I know we shared this on our Twitter, to also understand that, again, he was the vice president who watched a president draw a red line and then be forced into a corner where that red line no longer mattered. Um, but as we dive into foreign policy, as we talk about international politics and understanding that Ukraine might not be in NATO, but there seems to be a buy-in and a focus from NATO to support Ukraine against Russian aggression. I just want to ask how you all are feeling about this. I know it's been a story that's dominated the headlines lately. It seems every day that we're on the precipice of war, but then it also seems like it's going back. There's been so many ebbs and flows, like a real true honest opinion of how y'all are feeling here in this news. I, it's, um, I don't know. I feel a little detached. Hmm. Um, and I, I, I kind of feel like a lot of people do, I don't know, like it's very serious and it's very scary and we really just don't know what Russia's going to do. Or, I mean, the public doesn't know probably hopefully as hopefully our government knows a little bit more so we can act accordingly. But, you know, I really view this as like a like a prisoner's dilemma kind of issue. <laughs> I mean, Russia does this. We do this. What's the best op- like the best outcome for both players is to actually um, cooperate. But both players have to choose that. And at the moment, it's not the best outcome for at least Russia. Um, I don't know. You know, Putin has wanted Ukraine. He's wanted these um, uh, buffer states that used to be in the Soviet Union since he gave us long speech in 2005 that's been cited a few times recently about how the Soviet Union collapsing was one of the worst geopolitical geopolitical disasters like ever in the history of the world in that Ukraine is his. Yeah. And obviously he probably said it in different words than that, mm-hmm. but also in Russian. Yes. But I mean, look no further than what's happened over the last just year. He's starting to shore up those buffer nations again. He's in, uh, Belarus, he's in Kazakhstan, um, mm-hmm. shooting protesters in the street, um, against high gas prices actually, and just inequality in general. Yeah. And now in 2014, he took Crimea from Ukraine and now he's all over Ukraine's border, um, yeah. in Belarus and on the Russian border as well. And even if he doesn't invade, he is shoring up his support and trying to create those buffer zones again. That's what he's trying to do. The power of Russia to him is still very alive and well, and he thinks he can get it back. Mm -hmm. And how we react is going to determine what happens next, which is really unfortunate because I don't, there's not really a place where Putin loses, Yeah, but there's, it's hard to see us winning because even the sanctions that we've, that we might put on him and his threats, there's not really a win for us in this at all, unless he decides to back off randomly. And I don't think that's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be fallout war or if something will happen. I just don't know what's going to happen. And that's like the scary part is it's a little unpredictable at the moment. Torrance, as a generation that has experienced the longest war in American history, are you feeling that kind of pressure or that kind of uh, animosity of are we about to do this all over again? Well, I don't know that I would frame like my opinion that way because I don't see this 
I don't see this as the same thing as obviously what happened in Afghanistan with, you know, this prior longest war. Mm -hmm. I will say that I'm very disturbed and unsettled by the actions that Russia has taken in possibly evading, invading Ukraine. And it is, you know, I'm following this day to day and it's becoming more clear that it is quite likely that they are going to invade. I mean, yeah. we have we have sent the message to our people and to Americans in Ukraine to, to, to leave the country. Canada um, and France have both removed all of their diplomats um, and their families from Ukraine. Um, I think that it's really great. I mean, to, to, to the more specific political point that you kind of made to, to shore that up is, no, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, but actually Ukraine's only not a member of NATO because of Russia. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 actually mm-hmm. like they would be a, a NATO member if it wasn't um, for the way that you that Russia has used that as a bargaining chip in so many of NATO's votes um, that. But I think that in, with all all without the name, they are a part of NATO. And that's why you see the NATO countries rallying to, to protect them. But also, I think that anyone who has any clear eye on history understands that Russia invading and and conquering Ukraine is a precursor to a much more violent and scary situation in Europe that European countries who um, do have a long eye on history understand what what danger a a move like that is for a country who like Russia who right like you said ultimately does not always yield to sanctions to mm-hmm. losing right it is a much more ideological and prideful thing for putin than it is a tactical political thing he doesn't have to win elections he doesn't have to show up support by his people he doesn't have to do any of those things they have they have an they have an economy that like we can sanction them right but they don't have an economy their economy is smaller than california's their economy is smaller than new york's Right. Like as an entire country, Russia does not export things. They do not manufacture things outside of arms, essentially. Um, and gasoline is their only main export. So we don't have a lot outside of military action to deter them. Our sanctions will be hard, but he doesn't care that much about exactly. his people. That's yeah. the difference. Like they won't have get the supplies as people will likely starve. Right. Like and then that's where like countries, the like, democratic countries that have a moral compass struggle with those kinds of sanctions because it's the people in Russia that are going to be the people who are the ones who suffer from these decisions. So I'm concerned. I am, I would say that I'm leaning more. I bet you, I would say there's a 70% chance they invade. That's how I would feel right now. I've also heard that that number being cited by some more uh, national security professionals um, in coverage and I think that we have to keep our eye on this one. I think that this could escalate into something much worse in Europe. And I also think that Russia's political position on this, like and in the way that Biden handles it, directly impacts how our elections will end up going because people don't understand the problem enough to make an informed vote about the decisions that are made. So even if he has to send things to send people and aid to Ukraine, people might have an adverse reaction to that without understanding the larger repercussions. I mean, it's a lot. It's also shocking to hear like our own Pentagon officials just come right out and say, we will arm an insurrection in Ukraine if Russia takes over. Yeah. That, that stuff's just not usually said out loud. It's That's just, true. It's, it is it's, a policy it's, we've done before. It's a boss. It's a policy we've done before, but it's just not usually said out loud that blatantly. It's just really interesting. Yeah. Uh, because like they're, they're powerless in a way to like some of these, like, I mean, the, like, that's the thing that's scary, I would say, like to contextualize it, is Putin could just try to do a, a backdoor coup. He absolutely could, and he is choosing not to. 
And well, that is the thing that you have to keep your eye on. It is important that you bring that up, though, because there was recent intelligence to come out of the United Kingdom that that is an option that is very much on the table for um, Putin of um, leading a pro-Russian candidate in the coming elections to essentially just build a new ally and slowly merge them in without it being as hot as it currently is. And I, I also want to echo your point as we will hear a lot about sanctions in the coming weeks. We will hear that the U S is putting some of the harshest sanctions in history on Russia. Other members of the um, European union are also more than likely going to follow suit. And I think you make a very good point that a lot of people leave out of that context of until recently, those sanctions very rarely hit specific members of the government. It was more on the country and limiting exports. The people of Russia are already struggling to make ends meet and to have food. There is a famine actually happening in the country currently, but due to state-sponsored media, this is not a conversation that's being talked about. And as those sanctions come up, while they might be a, a good option because they're not war, they aren't doing the things that are necessary because we can recognize in this space a former member of the KGB does not care about the Russian people. Um, he does care about power, as you highlighted at the onset, Caleb. Yeah, and as we wrap this up, I was listening to um, Pod Save the World with Tommy Vitor and Ben Rhodes, who used to be in the Obama administration in foreign policy and affairs and whatnot. And Tommy had a really interesting theory about this actually might signify Putin's weakness more than his strength, because currently every single place that he is trying to occupy, including his own country, has is having protests against the authoritarian governments. Mm -hmm. And Ukraine doesn't seem like it would be any different if he actually did take it over. So will this is this is just is this a way for him to to quell those protests or are those protests going to continue and his resistance can continue to get greater and greater i don't know it's an interesting idea but you just kind of have to hope for the best here guys and we'll be right back All right, and we're back, guys. So like we mentioned at the intro, we are um, expecting to put out some new content. One of those is specifically um, a new segment that we're going to have, or rather an individual episode of their own called Civics Failed, um, to dive into the lack of civic literacy in our, in our country. And, and before before it's said, we're not talking about the job that you know teachers are doing. We think they're doing a great job. But how are we not engaging um, more civically to have civic literacy and understanding on how our voice, vote, and our constitutional routes uh, rights allow us to engage in our democracy more fully. Um, and to tease on that a little bit, I am putting both Terrell and Caleb on the hot seat with a little bit of a <laughs> civics quiz. Uh, now, this is a civics quiz titled, What Do You Know About the U.S. Government from the Pew Research Center? want to give uh, credit where it's due, and we're going to kick it off now. Gentlemen, you ready? As ready as it's going to be. Let's do it. All righty. So question one. In the case of a tied vote in the U.S. Senate, is the deciding vote cast by a, the vice president, B, the president, C, the Senate majority leader, or D, the Senate parliamentarian. I wish we had like buzzers. <laughs> I would win, so it doesn't make a difference. But, wow. oh. It's the vice president, it's by the, the way, i.e. Kamala vice Harris. President. We Correct. had a whole conversation about the filibuster in case anyone missed that. Yes. Yeah. 
Question two. A filibuster in the U.S. Senate can be <laughs> a- <laughs> can be used to prevent legislation from coming to a vote. Of the 100 U.S. senators, how many votes are needed to end a filibuster? 60. You- 60. Did you have another question? <laughs> I think no, he was, was going to give say, us options. I'm like, we don't do need, you need the options after that conversation. If we need the options, we should just end the podcast. <laughs> um, next question. How is the number of terms a president can serve determined? Options. A, custom and precedent. B, there is no limit to the number of terms a president can serve. C, Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution. Or D, the 22nd Amendment of the Constitution. The 22nd Amendment. I'm the feeling 22. Amendment. No. <laughs> <laughs> Just Next no. question. The U.S. Electoral College is A, an assembly that formally elects the president, B, trains those who run for political office, C, supervises the presidential debates, and D, is another name for the U.S. Congress. Can we actually amend the Constitution so that it does train people to run for office? Because that would be kind of cool. <laughs> but it elects. <laughs> is an assembly that formally elects the president. Yes. Oh, yes. We didn't answer that, did we? <laughs> I said I said it elects. I forgot how the full answer was. Hey, if Next they question. did both that and and they supervised presidential debates, then a Republican couldn't run. <laughs> True. <laughs> Go on, Torrance. There is that whole thing that we didn't get into. Um, so next question. Which of the following rights is guaranteed by the First Amendment to the Constitution? Is it the right of free speech, the right to bear arms, the right to privacy, or the right to remain silent? A, free speech. A, the right of free speech. And just because I want to have a little fun, (laughs) do you guys want to talk about where these other rights lie in the Constitution, such as B, the right to bear arms is where? Second. Second Amendment. Uh, The right to remain silent, I don't recall, that is not a a constitutional amendment, that is your Miranda rights? Yes, but it's pulled from, (laughs) oh God, the fifth or the eighth, I can never, I always mix up these two and it's so bad. Are you sure that that's that's uh, what Miranda versus Arizona? I think yes, something yeah. like that. Is the is where Miranda rights came it's from? It's pulled from due process, and due process is which one? Trust us, we know what we're talking about. Yeah, do you really? And then right to <laughs> privacy. What is that? The is hey, I was right. Is the fifth? <laughs> I don't think right to privacy is one. It, no, it's it a... also falls into the whole Miranda piece. Yeah. It's just yeah. like the separation of church and state is not like a constitutional thing. Trust me, we saw in the last <laughs> administration. <laughs> yeah, yikes. Next question. Do you happen to know which political party currently has a majority in the U.S. Senate? Well, no, actually. Their actions would tell me I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, neither. The, neither, but with the tie-breaking vote, it's the Democrats. The, with the vice the president. Democratic Party, yes. Full circle moment from first question. Woo! And then, last question. Do you happen to know which political party has a majority in the U.S. House of Representatives? Ironically, still the Democrats. The Democratic Party. Which, fun announcement, um, Nancy Pelosi announced that she will be running for re-election. That's not a surprise. A little bit. (laughs) Oh, you think so? Diane Feinstein can do it. (laughs) She's going to do it. Leave her alone. People haven't talked about her in a while. You guys got 100% of the questions right. Oh, my gosh. We that is are... quite exciting for you. Woo! So 
I I implore our our listeners to, to wonder to think about did you know the answer to these questions and also by knowing the answers to those questions do you know how they translate to the larger conversations we're having in politics why certain bills aren't getting passed why it is difficult for us to bring votes to the floor on certain bills I think that that's what we're trying to get to that when we're having a lot of these political conversations a lack of civic knowledge. Um, I think is hindering people from understanding why certain things are happening. And then thus, because of that are misplacing blame and, or mis or giving the wrong, giving credit to the wrong, not just political party, but to the wrong person. Right. Um, and I think that with an increase in civic knowledge and understanding how our, our constitution um, affects the way our government works, how politics affects the way our government works legislatively um, and how the different branches of government play into our freedoms and rights. So I think that once we get, we roll out these episodes, we, we hope to have a really robust conversation about how we can more actively use our civic knowledge and as well our constitutional rights to engage in our democracy more. Anything you guys want to say? Yeah, I mean, I think this is going to be a really great um, opportunity to to push out content that really talks about this this idea that civics failed. I mean, I know personally for me, I uh, uh, when I was going through high school and stuff, I didn't have a civics class. But That's apparently, my mind boggling to me. That's but every time you say that, insane. It, what? But apparently, apparently, my parents did. I didn't know it was a thing at all until I got to college that there was a God, that class. is. I took Idaho. I took period. A, I took hey. an AP government class, it's but same. that's it's the same thing. It's, yeah, it's I did too. Same thing, but aside from civics, we didn't have a real <laughs> civics class. You know what I mean? AP I, US I, history. I mean, what? Come on, I, civics. I do think that like contributes to a lot of where kind we of the discourse today. that we see in politics is that a lot of people don't understand how things happen, or we just we just barrel towards one answer when that legit is just not how it works. Or they just say that it politics are just too dark and too sad that I can't blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and, I, and one of those things is like, I, cause I, I and I want to say this more transparently to the listener is that like, I, it's not a judgment pass on some people, but sometimes when we're having these, these hard political conversations, like I don't want to like, I'm not making a judgment about someone because of their intellect or their knowledge, right? Like what they know. But sometimes I do want to say, you hold that opinion because you simply don't understand things. Yeah. And that's just also true. Like yes. it is just also true. Sometimes people's ignorance and lack of understanding of our government and legislative process is why they have completely ignorant and misinformed or, or fully uninformed opinions about what's going on in our politics. But it's really, but you lose someone in the, in the, in the persuasion or in the conversation, as soon as you say, essentially, and, and less light, nice words, you're not smart enough to understand this because I think that's how some people feel. And so I think that, that well, well, no, and no, and that's what I'm saying. We would never say that, right? But that's why I think that the, that's why I think this opportunity to have civics failed is so important because I think that we want to bring people along with the conversation. We want people to understand what's affecting their lives in a way that is factual, and hopefully we can do some good with this. Yeah, I just I still will always think it's mind-boggling because a part of my experience in civics was um you had to go to a city council meeting or you had to sit and like you actively participated in it so while i'm very excited for this i do um challenge our listeners as we dive into things and hit on certain topics take an opportunity to go to a zoning meeting and hear why your local city is building this huge housing project because affordable housing is an issue hashtag boise um take an opportunity to really engage in it beyond just what you hear or um, some of the topics that we'll go over. 
All right, y'all. Thank you all for joining us for our first episode of season two. I'm Caleb Smith. I'm Torrance Witherspoon. I'm Terrell Couch. And we're dangerously likely to see you next week.